One of the things I love about teaching a metta retreat is getting to meet you every day and hear about the power of this practice as it's working for all of you in all these different ways, these varied ways, as we uncover, as we enter the terrain of the heart. It's really very powerful to sit there as we do and have you share your stories, your experience with us. So thank you. I love that. And it just uh, reveals again and again the power of this practice and the ways it works in so many different ways, so many different levels, in so many different aspects of our life and our understanding. We give these fairly basic instructions, fairly simple instructions, and it's just magical what happens when people apply the practice. But as well as working in the terrain of the heart, the emotional world, another thing I think we really can learn a lot from a metta retreat is about actually the craft of meditation itself, the art of meditation. We learn about skillful effort versus acceptance. Because there's a lot of, uh, there can seem like a lot of doing involved in metta practice, in all of the different aspects of it, in keeping the phrases going, and directing, and visualizing, and checking in. You know, it's a very active practice, different from Vipassana, where the simple instructions you just sit down and pay attention to whatever arises. There's a lot going on in our metta practice, and obviously we get involved in that. But there's the opportunity to get caught in the doing, or to see it as uh, another avenue for understanding, understanding ourselves and the way the mind works, the way our heart works, the way the practice works, the way concentration works as we do this practice. Sylvia, I think it was just this morning, called it tinkering. And uh, I I think that's a very good uh, metaphor for what we do. We have to check in and see what's happening in this practice for us. What needs cultivating? What needs to be balanced? What needs to be strengthened? What perhaps needs to be let go of a little? So we really need to be paying attention on all these different levels of our experience. And one of the things I really think we need to learn or to to cultivate is our own intuition and trust. And to come to trust our intuition of what's working for us in this practice. What needs to be, as I said, strengthened or balanced. To really stay in touch. If we're engaged in the practice, we need to develop this quality. And if you have a sense that something needs to be strengthened, to to try it out and, and see what the result of that is to start to trust that intuition about what's right for you in a particular time. Because as as I've been saying to people in the interviews in this practice, what we're always balancing is the concentration and the meta-feeling. And at many points, um, and in some ways, they're very integrated, they're very um, unified, But there are definitely different things we can do to cultivate one or the other. So to be paying attention to what needs to be strengthened at any particular time. If the meta-feeling is a bit dry, but we're very concentrated, to put more emphasis on the meta-feeling. Or if there's a lot of heart opening, which is wonderful, I would say, just go with that. But out of that space, or later on, we feel a little disconnected, to 
put some effort into deepening the concentration to steadiness and stabilization. But because of all this doing, the practice can seem a lot about wanting. In some ways, it seems to have uh, much more of a sense of a goal, something we should get out of the practice than vipassana. And so there can be a real conflict here because obviously we've heard the first noble truth that there's suffering in life and that the cause of suffering is wanting. It's usually um, wanting or craving a translation of the Pali word tanha. And so it can seem a little, uh, as I said, a paradox that, that here we are, you know, trying to practice wholeheartedly, but really wanting this, wanting to be happy, wanting the other person to be happy, wanting to be concentrated, wanting to experience metta. And this seems a little a, a disjunct to the way we practice our vipassana. Because usually this wanting, this force of desire, we think of as unwholesome. But I think there's a, a, a the, the, the kind of wanting I'm talking about that manifests in this practice is actually a translation of another Pali word that's chanda. It's also translated as desire or wanting, but chanda is actually a neutral quality. It's not considered unwholesome or unskillful. It's not considered a source of suffering. It depends what it's associated with that tips it one way or the other. And it can be an incredibly wholesome force. The way it's one of the ways it's traditionally um, talked about is dhamma chanda. It's love of the Dharma, of the teachings, of the truth, and wanting to experience that, express that, know that for ourselves in our own life. And that's one of the you know, wonderful things to cultivate in practice is Dhamma Chanda. Well, I think here we're cultivating Metta Chanda. And it's a very wholesome thing to want for ourselves. It's a very skillful thing to want for ourselves. As long as we hold it, with those deep understandings that our Vipassana meditation teaches us or the Buddhism teaches us about how if we get attached or cling, then we'll suffer. But to wholeheartedly want this feeling of metta, the happiness of others, the ease of others or ourselves, is actually a very positive, skillful thing. One of the, the um, things that can really support this exploration of our own experience in all of the, the range of, of things that will happen to us, both the positive and the more difficult, is the quality of patience. And that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. Often when we hear the word patience, our first resonance of it is, is not so positive. You know, be patient. It's usually someone telling you what you should be when you're not. It reminds us of long trips in the back seat of our family car. You know, when are we going to get there? Just sit down and be patient. Or visits to relatives or those kinds of things where with someone telling us this would be good for us. We should be this. And obviously we weren't or else they wouldn't be telling us that in the first place. But here on retreat, it's actually an essential thing to develop. I'm sure you've had a sense of that. Just being able to be with every day as it unfolds, from wake-up bell, and if you ever stop and think about how far away the bell that leads you to sleep is going to be, you know you need to cultivate some patience to be with your experience. Because there's nothing that goes slower than an uncomfortable sitting or a distracted sitting or one where the hindrances are present. 
time just seems interminable. And walking meditation, that's a cultivation in patience. If we don't have patience, it's every minute we're looking at the... It's only been ten minutes. I've been out here for hours, you know, pacing to and fro. When we're not engaged in the process, the walking meditation can just seem endless. So patience is something we really need to cultivate on retreat if we don't want to suffer a lot. Because when we're impatient, it doesn't change our sense of time. It actually makes it expand and seem even longer. But patience is not just tolerance or the ability to put up with things or the willingness to put up with things. It's actually one of the paramis, the, the, uh, the list of ten perfections, qualities that we can cultivate in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, that lead us to awakening, lead us to a fullness of presence in our life. They're the qualities that the Buddha cultivated on his way, on his path to becoming the fully awakened one while he was a bodhisattva prior to his full awakening. The Pali word for patience is kanti in in Sanskrit shanti. And I think they're both lovely words uh, to resonate with. And traditionally it says that patience is what can arise when we combine restraint with energy. So that sense of, um, it's not a passive thing, there's energy there, but there's restraint, there's a sense of holding back, a sense of settling back in the moment. That's patience. When we bring patience to an experience, it allows us to experience it fully, to meet it fully, and to accept it fully. Patience isn't apathetic or indifferent. They're actually the the, um, near enemies of patience, just like the Brahma-viharas, all of the paramis have near and far enemies. The near enemy of patience is just indifference or apathy. Patience acknowledges that there will be difficulty, whether their difficulties are internal in our own inner world or externally in the forces or the situations that we find ourselves in. And it's willing to be there. It's willing to be there with those difficulties. But as Eknath Warren says, patience can't be acquired overnight. It is just like building up a muscle. Every day, you need to work on it. And we are doing that here. I'm sure you've appreciated every day, whether we like it or not, we're working on patience. I'm sure there are moments when we're working on impatience too, but uh, (laughs) hopefully the guiding light, the intention is to this deep patience, this deep acceptance. So what is patience? What is this quality called patience? Sharon Salzberg, in her book, A Heart as Wide as the World, says that true patience is constancy, the consistent willingness to see this moment of reality as a vehicle for wisdom and compassion. Patience is not about gritting one's teeth and saying, I'll bear with this for another five minutes because I'm sure it'll be over by then and something better will come along. Patience is not dour and it is not unhappy. It is a genuine connection with whatever is happening right now. Patience is a great power. The Buddha talked about it as being both the highest austerity and the highest form of devotion. 
And I love that she added that, the highest austerity and the highest form of devotion. Because it's not an easy thing to be patient. Patience usually implies that something somewhat difficult is going on, something challenging is going on. We're usually not patient without, or needing to be patient with our joy or our bliss. We're quite happy when those are present. So it's the highest austerity because it acknowledges that there's difficulty and the, the highest form of devotion. When I think about patience and a full expression of patience, it really seems to me like a full body experience. Unless every part of me is alive to patience, there'll be some holding, some tension, whether it's in the mind or the body. A true patience is a full body experience. A commitment to being present present with a deep acceptance. Trungpa Rinpoche in his book Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism said this about patience. Patience also feels space. And I like that he didn't say it feels like space. He said it feels space. It never fears new situations because nothing can surprise the bodhisattva. And he's talking about the bodhisattva because patience is one of the qualities that bodhisattvas cultivate. So it's a whole teaching on the qualities of the bodhisattva. But hopefully, and I think essentially, we're all bodhisattvas cultivating these qualities. So he says, nothing can surprise the bodhisattva. Nothing. Whatever comes, be it destructive, chaotic, creative, welcoming or inviting, the bodhisattva is never disturbed, never shocked, because she is aware of the space between the situation and oneself. And then anything can happen in that space. Whatever occurs does so in the midst of space. Nothing takes place here or there in terms of relationship or battle. Therefore, transcendental patience means that we have a flowing relationship with the world, that we do not fight anything. Of course, when he talks about transcendental patience, it's, it's patience manifesting in the highest way it possibly can, with that sense of spaciousness, where there's no battle, no here or there, because there's this immediate meeting of whatever experience is with us in that time. So many things wouldn't be done, couldn't be done, if there weren't great examples of patience exhibited. If you've been to Europe and been to the great cathedrals and read a little bit about their history, you'll see that uh, a cathedral was started in 1610 by so-and-so and then he died and someone else took it up and in 1680 it was halted for a while because there was some war or something going on or they ran out of money and then in 1702 someone else picked it up and continued it. Some of those cathedrals took hundreds of years to build. The person that built them never saw them even a part, the person that started them never saw them even a part of the way through their completion. But they had the sense of patience, of a willingness to begin a project that would take what to them was lifetimes, eons of time. It's amazing. 
we don't seem to do this so much anymore. Anything that takes longer to build than an election cycle doesn't really seem to happen. It's, it's just this short-term thinking of what am I going to benefit from? In the olden times, it wasn't like that. People began these enormous projects and were willing to just trust that even though they wouldn't be there, they would be completed. And, you know, again, just seeing those cathedrals, massive stones, and knowing the tools that they had to work with in those times. It's just mind-boggling that they're willing to cut and haul by hand these stones and lay them up to create these magnificent, inspiring testimonies to faith and to devotion and to patience. When we plant a tree, we often know that we won't be around to see it fully flower, grow to maturity. Though nowadays all the horticultural magazines, you know, sell trees guaranteed five years, full grown, you know. An oak tree doesn't grow in five years. I hope we're still planting them because so many of them are dying. It's just such a heartbreak to be here in the hills of Marin and feel the loss of all those majestic old trees. But if we plant them, if we replant them today, in 50 years, there'll be another majestic oak tree. Just as we planted this tree out in the um, plaza outside, it's just a small tree. But imagine in 10 years, or 20 years, or 50 years, its whole crown, its whole canopy, will shelter the whole plaza out there. It's wonderful. Whenever we create a work of art, we have to bring a huge amount of patience to that endeavor. I'm not particularly artistic, but just know that to be so. The patience to be there with the empty sheet of paper or the lump of clay. Again, being in Europe and seeing the great sculptures, especially Michelangelo's David, You know, it's massive, it's huge. And apparently he said about it that David was in there all the time. I just had to take away the excess stone to reveal him. Such a sense of selflessness in that process. He didn't create anything. He just removed the excess. But to work with stone, to chip away and sand and smooth, enormous patience, but what beauty is created out of that. I actually think that the uh, thing of sculpting out of stone can be a great analogy for our practice. Because I'm sure many of us feel that our hearts are enclosed in stone. And this is practice is chipping away to discover what's inherently there. It's not that we're creating anything. We're just uncovering the heart of metta that is inherently underneath what can feel like, can feel like a crust of stone. And in this day and age, a wonderful, inspiring example of patience is our dear friend, colleague and neighbor, Joanna Macy. For those of you who don't know her, she's an environmental activist that spent many years, tens of years, working with the issue of nuclear power, nuclear waste, nuclear disarmament, doing um, nuclear, nuclear despair workshops, really confronting the fear that we all have of the possibility of the end of the earth as we know it, through the foolishness of man, through an act of ill will. And she says, well, we're in this situation now. We have these nuclear weapons. We have this nuclear waste. The only thing we can righteously do about it now, there are all of these, this waste that needs to be stored 
we need to take care of it. Her project was to to create these um, I don't know I don't remember what she called them, but basically temples around this nuclear waste and have people guard them, take care of them, watch them for as long as they needed to be taken care of. And you know that's one of the terrible things about nuclear waste. She's talking about hundreds and hundreds of years, maybe longer. I'm not an expert. But she was willing to say and willing to put her life on the line to see that this would happen because she saw it's what we needed to do. So all of these kinds of things cultivate what we call the long-enduring mind. It's it's a really, a, the thing called the long enduring mind that patience cultivates is a necessary component for our spiritual practice. Because you may have noticed, we usually go slower than we would like. You know, we, we, when we first start to practice, we call it the honeymoon period where it just seems like so full of potential and I'm just going to change my life and transform my heart and be a different person and we come on another retreat and it's still pretty good but after a few years, we see the enormity of the task. It, it's true. It seems to get longer. The, 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 the trajectory just deepens and steepens. The more we know, the more we see there is to know. So in spiritual practice, we really need to be in it for the long haul, really ready to put the time in that it takes to do this difficult and challenging work. It's like all the... People, the, the news reports these days are doing a lot of interviews, people on the street about the stock market, you know, it's totally tanking. And every, everyone in the interview says, oh, I'm in it for the long haul. I think, well, who are all these people that are selling all the time? You know, everyone they speak to is in it for the long haul, but someone's selling. Someone out there is making it dive. This phrase, long enduring mind, is associated with um, a Chinese Zen master called Xu Yun. And I recently read uh, his biography. It's a, an amazing book called Empty Cloud. Um, Zhuyun lived till he was 120 years old. He was born in 1840 at the time of the Opium Wars. He lived through the Treaty of Nanjing, the last five reigns of the Manchu dynasty and its eventual collapse in 1911 and witnessed the founding of communist China in the first half of the 20th century. I think he actually died in about 1950 or something. What a lifespan. And in that life, he did amazing things. He started practicing in his early teens. And he lived a life of enormous privation and simplicity, a great deal of austerity. He spent, uh, when he left home, he was worried that his father would come and bring him back, we didn't want him to be on a spiritual path, so he went and hid on a mountaintop above a monastery. Then he heard that his father had died, so he came back into the monastery for a few years, but then he wanted to deepen his practice, so he went back to the grotto on the top of the monastery, behind the monastery. So this is in his 28th, 29th, and 30th years. I stayed in the grotto for three years, During those years, my food consisted of pine needles and green blades of grass. My drink, the water of the mountain streams. As the time went by, my trousers and shoes wore out, and I had only my robe to cover my body. My hair and beard grew to over a foot in length, so I wore a topknot on my head. 
My eyes became bright and piercing, so that those who saw me took me for a mountain spirit and ran off. (laughs) Thus I avoided speaking to others for three years. Makes a week seem like the blink of an eye. (laughs) He goes on to describe all these powerful experiences he had, you know, living so simply on his own, not speaking for three years. It was incredible. But then he finally came down um, out off the mountain and met another master who basically told him that he'd been wasting his time. <laughs> he said, those years you've been spending, he said, youth, as I see your current practice, you are like a heretic and entirely on the wrong path, having wasted ten years of training. How would you feel if you'd worked that hard and someone said you'd wasted that time? Xu Yun didn't bat an eye. He said, well, tell me the right way. And he started to practice totally ardently with this new teacher. It's just amazing. He nearly died any number of times. There's a, another story about how he was wanting to cross, uh, take a boat downstream on a rapidly flowing river. And he, always, he waited till everyone else boarded. His luggage was aboard and he leapt across, he went to step across to get on this very narrow small boat. Just as he did, the mooring rope broke. But he managed to grab hold of it. So he was pulled into the water behind this boat. He said the water is very cold, very rough and very icy. But the boat was very unstable. So he didn't feel he could pull himself up and get climb on the boat. So he just let the boat drag him. It doesn't say how long, it's like many hours until they arrived where he was meant to go. It's just a different way of experiencing our life. You know, it's incredible, but it's not that he's that ancient. You know, he died in our lifetime, in some of our lifetimes. That capacity is there in all of us if we cultivate it. In another lifetime, perhaps? We all have our own areas of patience we're cultivating. There there are many things that teach us all patience. Where we need patience, I'm sure you have your own list. I'll talk about a few of them. I think primary on that list of things that need patience and teach us patience is having children, being with children. For those of you that are parents, I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm actually not a parent, but I love kids and spend time with them when I can. I recently saw a New Yorker cartoon that showed a mother with four small, crying, arguing children walking down a street, carrying a sign reading, The end of my patience is near. (laughs) And so we need patience with children, both when things are going well, when they're happy, to stay with them in that, to experience the world through their eyes. And definitely when things are difficult, when they're stressed, when they're cross, when they're frustrated, when they're frazzled. If we lose our patience, everything is lost when we're with a child. We need to learn to live to another person, another being's timetable and agenda. You know, we have to let go of everything when we're with a child. We have to see through the child's eyes, experience the world through a child's eyes. And it can be so wonderful to do that to take the time to go for a walk with a child. You know, you can't bustle along and get somewhere. Those little legs go slower than yours. 
and you have to reach down and hold the little hand. It's a great, enormous teaching. Likewise with animals, especially small animals, young animals. The gentleness and the patience that we need to just enter their space, to connect with them, especially if we're trying to train them in any way. If we have any form of illness, whether it's a short, acute illness or chronic illness, so much patience needs to be brought to that situation. If we try to push ourselves to healing, push ourselves to doing too much too soon, you probably know it sets the process back. We need to bring that tenderness of patience, the kindness of patience to ourselves when we're ill so that we can take care of ourselves. It's a bit like being on retreat. You know, it's sort of like we're here and we're a little sick and we're all trying to heal ourselves. We can't force the healing. We need to bring that tender patience that allows the healing to take place. If we ever want to read something, you know, I always think about speed reading. What do you absorb if you do that? You know, flipping through the pages and taking it all in in that way. It doesn't seem the same contextual experience as being there and turning the pages and feeling the story unfold. If we want to study anything or learn a new language, you know, we have to start with dog and cat and go and come and it seems so slow. But if we have patience to stick with it, the whole language can flower for us. But it takes a long time. When we grow things, when we garden, a great teaching of patience, really to enter into the world of the cycles of the garden, the cycles of nature. And no, we can't hurry them along. We can create all the conditions necessary, just like we do here on retreat, all of the conditions necessary, the sun and the watering and the fertilizer and the weeding, but we can't hurry things along. We can just be there and tend. And the heart is a garden, as they say. We tend to our heart in the same way. Another thing we sometimes have to be patient with is bad haircuts. (laughs) I don't know if my sister-in-law made this up, but she certainly was the one who said it to me. The difference between a good haircut and a bad haircut is two weeks. (laughs) They all grow out eventually. And I think one of the reasons why we love doing things, or many of us love doing things like crafts or even handiwork around, um, you know, uh, creating things around the house, little hobbies, um, is because that quality of patience that has to be there. And one of the things I do occasionally is knit. And when I get a project, you know, there's the picture of what it looks like finished, like the ball of wools and the knitting needles, and there's such excitement because all you see is the goal. You know, I'm going to knit this sweater or whatever it is, and you start, and you know, the first row seems pretty quick, and the second row seems pretty quick. But by the time you get to the middle, it starts to really slow down. And if all you're doing is holding the goal in mind and wanting the end, you're going to suffer again. You have to be there with every stitch, every step of the way, as the, as the thing you're building or creating flowers and manifests. Lining up for things. How often do we have to do that? You know, we walk to the the checkout line at the supermarket or, God forbid, Costco. You know, that's a real challenge. (laughs) 
and try to figure out which is the best line to get in. And how many times do you get in the wrong line? Doesn't it seem like always you get in the wrong line? And I know when I do that, I castigate myself. It's like a reflection on me as a person. I got in the wrong line. How could I do that? Instead of, you know, the Zen way, all lines are equal. It's so amazing how I always try to, you know, which is the best line? There's got to be one that, you know. And when I don't do it, it's so frustrating. And I stand there and stew instead of just knowing that what's it going to be in the end, a minute or two at the most that I'll stay waiting a little longer. There's a, um, a practice that many people are, are doing in our, in our circle, in our scene, I'm sure some of you have heard of it, called Nonviolent Communication by Marshall Rosenberg. Uh, apparently a very powerful way of learning to communicate, one of the essences of which, apart from listening really well, which is a form of patience, um, is repeating back or, or, or repeating back, uh, echoing to people what they say. And it's meant to be very profound, that people really feel heard. It drives me crazy <laughs> people do it, especially if I know they're doing it. I really, it's one I've really got to work with. James, one of our teachers, loves to do it. And I was telling him, you know, it really drives me crazy. He goes, it drives you crazy, doesn't it? <laughs> But I know it would be good for me if I could practice it. <laughs> to really do deep communication, you have to have a lot of patience. You have to be able to listen. And I love um, about this non-violent communication, uh, all of the monks and nuns associated with Amravati, which is this big monastery in England, you know, the, the, the largest Western uh, monastery, are all practicing non-violent communication because their communication was so bad. And if the monks and nuns need it, then surely we need it as well. But I think it's great that they're all there in their robes and their shaved heads, needing, knowing they need it and being willing to practice nonviolent communication. And as I started out by saying, here on retreats, obviously we need to cultivate patience, to be with our experience moment after moment, to be with each phrase fully, to be with each person that we're sending metta to fully, but to be with difficult mind states fully, to be able to just stay steady through our changing experience and not wish it to be different, not wish it to be different. There are many things that impede our patience or curtail our patience, challenge our patience. Obviously, the first one is impatience. (laughs) But actually, impatience is almost a quality that's cultivated in this modern society. You know, efficiency is the buzzword, the key word of getting things done fast. You know, computers are such a, a conduit for that feeling. If you have to wait 10 seconds for something to happen on your computer, it's like Microsoft, what are they doing? It's the code is too slow and cumbersome. and shouldn't be like this. We have this sense that everything has to happen straight away with faxes and emails. You know, instead of I'll mail it to you, it would be I'll overnight it to you, and now it's I'll fax it to you. It will be there like that. And email the same. It's just everything has to happen so fast. And it cultivates a sense of impatience when it doesn't. I remember Joseph Goldstein saying when he first started to practice metta, 
he really got in this thing of saying the phrases really fast as though there was somewhere to get. You know, the more phrases per minute, the more phrases per hour, the more brownie points he got in his practice. And he really had to, to see that tendency and pull back from it. And a phrase said slowly is much more impactful than a phrase that we rush through and don't understand. But even in our metta practice, we can find impatience coming. You know, I don't know how many of you have been saying, when are we going to get to the difficult person? Or maybe you've been saying, oh no, when is the difficult person coming? But it's usually out there and we have some sense of, oh, the difficult person. But in this society, it's like there's instant everything. And if it's something takes longer than five minutes, you know, we don't have time. Drive-throughs and instant coffee and instant meals and instant, instant everything. It's just amazing. But this quality of impatience actually is a whole unwholesome mind state and it leads directly to more unwholesome mind states. An airport is a wonderful place to experience that, whether you feel it for yourself or you see it manifesting in other people. I mean, airline delays, which are these days even more common, you can just see people throwing tantrums about it. And it's true that often we have somewhere to get to, but being rude and impatient and angry and aggressive doesn't make the plane come any faster, I know that. There's usually nothing we can do, you know. The airline is losing out when the flights are late. Nothing to be done. But we get impatient. I've had many airline delays. I remember one not so long ago. I was flying from San Francisco to Boston with my friend and colleague and teacher, Christopher Titmus, on the way to IMS, Insight Meditation Society, our sister center on the East Coast, to teach a retreat with Shada. And we got to the airport in plenty of time, you know, nothing seemed wrong, the plane was there, we could see the plane was there, and all of a sudden, you know, it just seems fine, and all of a sudden it flashes up, delay, delay, and everyone charges to the counter, what's going on? Well, it turned out they had strong winds in Boston and had blown a radar tower down. And so, everything was fine, the plane was there, Boston was still there, the airport was still there, but they couldn't let any planes land. And our flight, we had no idea how long does it take to rebuild a radar tower. I don't know. You know, just delayed one hour, two hours. And I'm like, we have to get to this retreat. We're starting, you know, like it's the most important thing in the world. I'm rushing to the counter. What can we do? And thinking we should fly to Hartford and get a bus. And and Christopher's just going, oh, well, you know, Shada's there. She'll do it. She'll be okay. I'm like, no, we've got to get there. I was so frantic, you know, that we had to get and start this retreat. A hundred people waiting for us. And Christopher was so nonchalant about it. It was a great teaching. But he said, let's go have breakfast. And we went. We had breakfast. And we looked in the bookstore. And we got to the retreat late. And Shada handled it. And, you know, it was fine. It was a, a great teaching for me. And you hear many, many stories, I'm sure you all have, of, of people being impatient on flights or getting aboard flights. One story I heard a while ago about, you know, the plane had landed taxiing to the gate and the announcement comes over don't get up until we've come to the gate this woman was so anxious so impatient to get off that she got up and got started getting her stuff out air hostess kept saying you know sit down first over the microphone then coming over to her you've got to sit down and she said no i've got to get off i want to first off i want to get off well instead of getting off first she got arrested you know and it's apparently <laughs> a, a federal offense to do that so it's one of those, you know, bizarre things. A little bit of patience would have got her there. And now, you know, I don't know what happened to her, but she was arrested and escorted off the plane and God knows what happened to her. 
patience can really be a helpful tool at times. Some other things that impede our capacity for patience, uh, another thing is resistance. I don't know if you've experienced this on retreat. I know for me, no? (laughs) For me, it's a really common one on retreat. Just, you know, the slowness of it all and the minuteness of it all and the nowhere else to go and nothing else to do but sit and walk and... uh. Last fall, I I did a long retreat uh, over at IMS again and... um, I was having basically a good retreat. I, I was doing a lot of concentration practices, which, you know, suppresses the hindrances, and my practice was going fairly well. But I'd had these moments, long moments, of just total resistance to being there, which didn't really match up with my experience. You know, basically, my sittings were fine. You know, I was felt that practice was deepening. This resistance would come up, and especially going down towards walking meditation. Just this, oh, every step, oh. Oh, and you know, there the planes would be going overhead and you'd be sort of, oh, where are they going? <laughs> they on the plane or the cars would drive by. You'd see people living a life and I was there for six weeks. It's just, where else? I'd be anywhere else but here. And I finally talked about it to my teacher. I said, you know, basically I'm having a time. I'm not suffering except for the resistance that comes up that doesn't seem to be in the context of my retreat. And she, she said so easily and simply, you know, it's just a habit a habit of mind. And I thought, oh, right. It's just this habit that I've gotten into that that doesn't really connect with my experience. And once I saw that, it was it's amazing how someone can just sort of shine this light on something that's caught you. And it just lifted a little. It would still come, but I just go, oh, there's that habit again, that habit of resistance. And it lessened the charge, the involvement in it so much. Expectations get in the way of patience. If we have an expectation that something should be happening or could be happening, we can't settle back in the moment with what is happening. And that's again a big one in our spiritual practice on retreat. You know, here I am, I've come to a metta retreat. When is my heart going to open? When am I going to experience the bliss of metta? You know, the heart pulsing with light and love. You know, when is that going to happen? And when we have those kind of expectations, we can't be present for the gentle or simple warmth of just friendliness or connection or kindness. The expectation gets in the way of allowing that to just be as it is. And another big thing that really blocks patience is the judging mind, the comparing mind. You know, when we sit in the hall and hear someone's question, why didn't I think of that question? That was such a good question. Or I'm not having that experience. You know, why aren't I having that experience? Or they seem so peaceful and so serene. Or they seem so irritable and anxious and, and uh, you know, walking too fast. What are they doing? Anytime we move into judging, we lose that sense of being able to be okay with things as they are. But the judging mind is really insidious for a lot of us. It's really very deeply conditioned and really important that we learn tools to work with it. Metta is actually considered a great antidote to the judging mind because in metta, the goal of metta is to hold all beings equal, to not so much feel that sense of separation. So if you notice a a, a, a judging thought in the mind, to be able to meet it with um, a phrase of metta, whether it's for yourself and the suffering you feel 
in that separation or for the other person that you're holding yourself up against as better than or less than. And sometimes it can feel like just a hot fry pan and it, the matter is just a drop of water that just sizzles and evaporates. But if you put enough drops of water excuse me, on a hot fry pan, fry pan, it will cool down. But it takes a long time. We have to be willing to be there with this practice of being willing to apply the antidote of patience and metta to the judging mind. Why is patience so important to us? Well, it helps us to work with all of those difficult mind states that I just talked about. But it does much more than that. It allows us to be present when things are difficult and dull, when things aren't going the way we would like. It helps us to see the details of things. You know, if you've done anything like look at, during this retreat of looking at a flower, or looking at one of the little lizards that normally we wouldn't have time to see, to see, you know, their fat bellies or their little eyes looking around, or that one has a tail or not a tail. Patience allows us to see those things. It allows us to honor the truth of things. St. Augustine said that patience is the companion of wisdom. And Shanti Deva, who wrote a whole book on the Bodhi, uh, Guide to the Bodhisattva's way, way of Life, again talking about these paramis or perfections that can be cultivated, said, Why be unhappy about something if it can be remedied? And what is the use of being unhappy about something if it cannot be remedied? And patience allows us to see that, to be with that, that wisdom. In our metta practice, it's all about connecting. Vipassana is about seeing clearly. Patience allows us to do both. We have to take time to connect. It's not a button or a switch that we can turn on. Patience allows us to deepen, to deepen, to see clearly, to connect, to come back, to stay present. If you've ever been taught anything by someone who's patient, compared to someone who's impatient, you know what that feeling is like. You know, if your boyfriend ever taught you to drive when you were a teenager and he was probably impatient, it's just a a horrible feeling to, to not be held in a learning process with patience. We need to learn to do that for ourselves, to hold this learning process of healing the heart and opening the heart with great patience and great tenderness. And patience brings all those wonderful qualities of ease and calm and peace and even equanimity, that deepest, highest perfection, highest understanding. (coughs) Patience allows us to love fully and to connect with this miracle that is life, that is our life. I'd like to close with a poem by Mary Oliver who I think exemplifies the, um, the genius that patience can allow us to bring forth. When you read her poems, you get a sense of her sitting in a field for hours or looking at a flower for hours or just holding something in her heart or her mind or her hand like she does with the grasshopper for as long as she needs to, as long as it's there incredible patience that allows her to see into the heart of things and then reproduce it in these beautiful words as she does. 
This is a poem called Stanley Kunitz, who's her neighbor. I used to imagine him coming from the house like Merlin, the magician, strolling with important gestures through the garden where everything grows so thickly, where birds sing, little snakes lie on the boughs thinking of nothing but their own good lives, where petals float upwards, their colors exploding, and trees open their moist pages of thunder. It has happened every summer for years. But now I know more about the great wheel of growth and decay and rebirth and know my vision for a falsehood. Now I see him coming from the house. I see him on his knees, cutting away the diseased, the superfluous, coaxing the new, knowing that the hour of fulfillment is buried in years of patience, yet willing to labor like that on the mortal wheel. Oh, what good it does the heart to know it isn't magic. Like the human child I am, I rush to imitate. I watch him as he bends among the leaves and vines to hook some weed or other. Even when I do not see him, I think of him there raking and trimming, stirring up those sheets of fire between the smothering weights of earth, the wild and shapeless air. So what she says is she thought that her neighbor, the, gard- the gardener, created his garden as if by some kind of magic. He wa- walked through like Merlin. But when she looked a little more deeply, saw the cycles, she realized it was only through great care and great diligence um, that he re- wove these miracles in the garden, that it took great patience to do that. And she said, oh, what good it does the heart to know it's not magic, that it's cultivation and time and patience that opens us to the miracle and allows the miracle to happen. And that's what we're cultivating here, the magic, the miracle of patience that allows the garden of our heart to flower fully. So let's just sit together for a moment. knowing that the hour of fulfillment is buried in years of patience, yet willing to labor like that on the mortal wheel. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.